Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On Friday, I was at a local hotel meeting uh, my friend Josh McDowell, who was here Friday and Friday night. And while I was waiting for Josh... Uh, uh, one of the managers came up to me with a big smile on his face, gave me a big old bear hug, and said, I just want you to know that I came up to you after church one Sunday and asked you to pray that I get a job. I had been unemployed, and I got the best job, this job, this week at the hotel. And then last night after service, a young girl came up to me, just a little gal. We prayed a few weeks ago that she would make the orchestra that she was trying out for. She's a little violin player. And she was all smiles last night, and she said, I'm in the orchestra. So that's not to say that my prayers necessarily are better than anybody else's prayers. Uh, Your prayers are as good as mine or anybody else's. But the point is, isn't it great when somebody tells you or you discover something you prayed for and to see it answered? I want to talk to you today about prayer. And I want to begin with one parent's experience, I think you'll like this. Last week, I took my children to a restaurant. My six-year-old son asked if he could say grace. As we bowed our heads, he said, God is good. God is great. Thank you for the food. And I would thank you even more if mom gets us ice cream for dessert. (laughs) And liberty and justice for all. Amen. Along with the laughter from the other customers nearby, I heard a woman remark, that's what's wrong with this country. Kids today don't even know how to pray asking God for ice cream. Why, I never. Hearing this, my son burst into tears and he asked me, did I do wrong? Is God mad at me? As I held him, and assured him that he had done a terrific job and God was certainly not mad at him, an elderly gentleman approached the table. He winked at my son and asked and said, I happen to know that God thought that was a great prayer. Really? My son asked. Cross my heart, he said. Then, in a theatrical whisper, he added, indicating the woman whose remarks started the whole thing, Too bad she never asked God for ice cream. (laughs) A little ice cream is good for the soul sometimes. Naturally, I bought my kids ice cream at the end of the meal. My son stared at his for a moment, and then he did something I will remember for the rest of my life. He picked up his Sunday and without a word walked over and placed it in front of the woman. With a big smile, he told her, Here, This is for you. Ice cream is good for the soul sometimes, and my soul is good already. (laughs) Don Harris of ABC reported just a couple weeks ago that nearly 60% of Americans claim that they pray every single day. We get all excited in hearing that, but let me tell you the rest of the story. The ones that top the list? Jehovah Witnesses. Second on the list? Mormons. Fourth 
are evangelicals. Fourth are evangelicals. Said Don Harris, older people are more likely to pray than younger people. Women pray more than men. The poor pray more than the rich. Republicans pray more than Democrats. No comment, just reporting what I read. Everybody knows that prayer is a huge topic in the Bible. You can't read the Bible without coming to the issue of talking to God in prayer. And so I did a little search this week. I tallied up all of the times pray or prayed or praying or prayer or a a variation of that word appears in the Bible. 370 times the Bible mentions prayer. It's huge. It obviously then must be huge to God. And it was one of the priorities of the early church. We find it in the list in chapter 2, verse 42. Now, I know you've read this title in your bulletin. This is the fourth week. It's the same title. It's sort of like Groundhog's Day, the movie. Every time you wake up at church, it's the same sermon, but it's not the same sermon. It's part one, part two, part three, and today part four of On Your Mark, Get Set, Grow. Because these are the four pillars that marked the priority system of the early church. But this final one on prayer, this is the one we feel most uneasy about personally. Guilt rises, admit it, whenever we hear the word prayer or the topic of prayer, because all of us, I venture to say, would admit that we could use more of that activity in our lives. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. I heard about when the gospel first came to Africa and there was one particular village that had a church and the elders of the church taught the people to gather in the morning at church and then go out into the jungle to their own spot, secluded, and have their devotions. Well, eventually, you could see where that person went because a path was marked out. And when you walk on grass, it takes away the grass and you have a bald spot or a a single track. And so you could see these marks going out from the village out into the jungle. But you could also tell if a person was slacking off in his or her devotions. Because the undergrowth would come back, the grass would start filling in. And so when one of the elders saw that, he would simply walk over to the brother, put his arm on his shoulder and say, Brother, there is grass growing in your path. And I have found that in my own life. That sometimes the grass grows in my path to God. And I'm not communicating with him as a priority like I should. Now this morning what we're going to do is move from general to specific. We're going to look generally at at how the early church prayed and what was their prayer life like. So we want to look at uh, a description of the prayer life of the early church generally. But then, second, we want to move to something more specific and look at a depiction of their prayer life specifically actually go in to one of the prayer meetings of the early church and listen to them let's begin then with uh, verse 42 where we have been beginning now for four weeks we notice they continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. In prayers. If I were to give you a description of the prayer activity of the first Christians, I describe it in three ways. First, they prayed regularly. Not sporadically, regularly. It was the regular practice of this group of believers. Every chapter in the book of Acts brings that truth to the surface. I just want to take you back and have you notice a couple of things. Go back to chapter 1 and look beginning in verse 12. This is just after Jesus ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication or strong praying with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this point, Peter stands up and says, one of our 12 is gone. That's Judas Iscariot. We need to replace him. Look down at verse 23. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. I just want you to imagine the scene of 120 brand new believers all huddled together in some room somewhere in Jerusalem. Their leader has just left them, ascended into heaven. And now they huddle together with one huge question. What now? What do we do now? And the only thing they knew to do, and they do it regularly, is gather together, and when they gather, to pray. As I read this, my mind went back to when I was 25, just turning 26, and we had started a Bible study at a nearby apartment complex, and that Thursday night Bible study had grown to 100 people. We didn't know what to do. And I remember after one of the Bible studies, somebody came right up into my face, a couple of people, and said, Now what? And I didn't know how to answer them because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to start a church. I'd never done this before. So I immediately said, well, now, Monday night, we're going to pray. So we started a Monday night prayer meeting, and that's the bulk of our question. God, now what? What do we do now? What do you want us to do now? How would you have us proceed? And that is essentially what the church did and continued to do. Dr. R.A. Torrey once wrote, Pray for great things. Expect great things. And work for great things. But above all, pray. That was the early church. Above everything else, they prayed. And they prayed regularly. Not only in Acts 1, but they pray in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. 
In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, at the hour of prayer, they go to the temple. In Acts 4, when a persecution breaks out, they pray. We'll read that in just a moment. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the leadership crystallizes their calling by saying, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they prayed regularly. Second thing I want you to notice is that they prayed customarily. Now let me explain that one. Will you notice in verse 42 of chapter 2 that at the end of that verse, when it introduces this fourth priority of prayer, my version, perhaps yours, simply says, and in prayers. I discovered that in the original language, there is a definite article before the noun prayers. It is tice prosukais, or the prayers. So it would best be translated, most literally, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. Many scholars believe this refers to a known, practiced manner of praying or set of prayers that the apostles were used to. Okay, what was the apostles' background? They were what? They were Jewish. And being Jewish people, they had ways of praying they had been brought up with. And now, in this transitional period between Judaism and following the Jewish Messiah and freedom in Jesus Christ, they would naturally resort to the prayers that they were familiar with. So, we notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's three in the afternoon. That's the time of the evening sacrifice. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the early church were still observing the set times of prayer. If you lived in Jerusalem, there were three, nine in the morning, 12 noon, and this one, 3 p.m., and no doubt, they would have prayed familiar articulations before the Lord. No doubt they would have uttered the Shema, uttered twice a day by fervent Jewish people. Shema Israel, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A compilation of verses out of Deuteronomy and Numbers. They probably would have prayed the Shemon Israel, or the 18 prayers that were uttered three times a day, these hours of the day, by the faithful Jewish people. Then there were prescribed prayers. There were prayers for light, prayers for darkness, prayers for fire, prayers for rain, prayers for the new moon, and prayers for travel. Beautiful prayers, all different scriptures out of the Old Testament. And although that to you, and perhaps even to me, sounds a little bit ritualistic and stilted when we hear that they were praying recited prayers. The idea is to bring every aspect of life into the presence of God. Every aspect of life. In fact, the Jewish Talmud said there's three things that can change the course of a person's life. Teshuvah, tzedakah, and tefillah. Teshuvah, repentance getting things right with God. 
If you've made a mistake, you ask God to forgive you. If you've done something with somebody else, you ask them, let's clear the path and start over. That's teshuvah. Number two, tzedakah, righteousness, acts of goodness towards somebody else. And number three, tefillah, heartfelt prayers to God. Heartfelt prayers. So rather or whether or not they memorized these prayers or they were recited prayers, it was heartfelt prayers that they customarily prayed. Now the third thing I want you to notice about their prayer life generally is that they prayed instinctively. It was their first response. It was the immediate reaction, the knee-jerk reaction. When something happened, let's pray. Go with me to Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. It's one of the apostles. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Please notice that that's how Christians responded to being hassled. It doesn't say Peter was put in prison and they started a letter-writing campaign against the government. Or they picketed in front of Herod's house. Or they filed a class action lawsuit. No, they, they wanted real power. They wanted real results. And they talked to God and they prayed. That was what they did. That's the first thing they did. That's the response. Now that's the first thing we should do. Why is it that it is so often our last resort... And it's sort of like, there's nothing left to do but pray. I've heard that. Listen to that. There's nothing left to do except pray. Oh, you should have started with that. And it's almost like, I've tried everything. I've exhausted my resources. And now I have to trust God. You see how weird that sounds? And typically, it's only when it's really a big issue. Oh God, I'm giving this one to you. It's if you can handle the little stuff. I, I suggest you bring the little stuff to God before it turns into the big stuff. There's a widow that came to G. Campbell Morgan. I've always loved this story. And she said, Dr. Morgan, do you think God would terribly mind it if we brought to him the little things in our life in prayer? And he smiled and said, Madam, can you think of anything that's big to God? Isn't that a great perspective? Now, to you it's big. To me it's big. But is it really big to God? Is it like, does God ever go, "Uh uh-oh. I wish you wouldn't have asked me for that. Does God ever bite his fingernails? Is cancer any more difficult for God to heal than a cold? Nope. It's all little stuff to him. So, this was the church. Nothing more, nothing less. 
Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. If you wanted to see their mission statement, if you were to ask the leaders, hey, what are you guys into? They would say, we're into this stuff. These four were into this. And they prayed. They depended. I love it. They didn't have a manual on how to start a church. They didn't have anybody telling them, you've got to do a 501c3 for the government if you want to be a religious organization. They didn't have any kind of organized plan on how to start a singles ministry or pastor's conferences or schools of ministry. They just relied on God. And this is what God was doing. So this is a, a description of their prayer life generally. Now, would you turn with me to chapter 4 of the book of Acts? And we go from general now to specific. I want to show you now a depiction of their prayer life specifically. And here we eavesdrop. Here we go into a prayer meeting and we learn what their pattern was. Verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, allow me to briefly paint the background. This is a time of crisis. This is a time of persecution. They had just been told by the Jewish temple leaders that it is now illegal. A law has been passed. You cannot do evangelism anymore in Jerusalem. You can't do anything. They threaten them and then let them go. So they're experiencing a trial. And have you discovered that trials produce prayer warriors? You discovered that? That we might pray, but when we're in trouble, boy, do we really pray. We really pray. We pray when we're in trouble. I mentioned that little Don Harris ABC survey at the beginning. And he noted that the poor will pray more than the rich. And then he asked this question at the end of his article. Does that mean, with this economic downturn in America, that we're going to see a lot more praying in our country than ever before? Perhaps. And that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? That would be a good thing. If America would be brought to its knees and humbled and not trust in its own power and own wealth, But now trust the Lord and pray. That could be a wonderful start. There was a sign in a principal's office at a local school that simply read, in case of nuclear attack, fire, or earthquake, the ban on prayer is temporarily lifted. (laughs) Well, of course. They're acknowledging the obvious. People will pray in times of distress. Somebody once said, as long as there are final exams to take, there will always be prayer in school. Now, let's discover the pattern of the early church. It might surprise you. Verse 24, this is a prayer with perspective. They raised their voice to God with one accord, and they said, this is what they say, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. I circled the word Lord in verse 24 because it is not the typical Greek word. Typical Greek word is kurios, not this. It's a very uncommon word. It's the word despata. It means despot, 
which is an absolute ruler, dictator, autocrat, authoritarian, sovereign, absolute. You are the despotah. Now, why did they use this term? Because they wanted to remind themselves just to whom they were talking. They weren't talking to Herod or Caesar or Pilate. They were talking to the ruler of the universe who made all those guys. And that gave them the right perspective before they asked God for anything. I suggest the same. I suggest that the best way to start a prayer is to realize to whom you are talking. Why? It will give you enough faith when you make your request. That's what Jeremiah did. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. O sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Good perspective. We so often carry our limitations over onto God in prayer. And it's almost like, oh God, this is, this is, this is a tough one. Here goes. I hope you can handle this. Well, you might not be able to handle it. But again, nothing's too big for him. Nothing's too hard for him. Jeremiah recognized that, and this church recognized it. Your God is big, folks. He's big. I want, I want you to just think about this for a minute. Right now, you individually are one of 6.7 billion people on this earth. This earth is pretty big. It's 8,000 miles in diameter. It's a big dirt clod going through space, traveling at 240, 250,000 miles per hour. You're on this dirt clod. You're one of 6.7 billion people, a very tiny speck on this big globe. But this earth, in comparison to the rest of the universe, is very small. We are 93 million miles away from the sun, our nearest star. But the sun isn't 8,000 miles in diameter. It's 860,000 miles in diameter. You could fit 1,200,000,000 Earths inside the sun. And that's just the nearest star. You've got a lot more stars out there. You're in a galaxy that's 10,000 light years by 100,000 light years And then there's billions of other galaxies. And that God of yours made all that and holds it like that. So next time you have a problem that's so big, just realize how big God is. little perspective here. I've got a problem. Yeah, but, but you're talking to that God about your problem. Well, I've got some enemies against me. But you're talking to that God about them. Hey, God can do a lot better job of vengeance than you can. And I use that word. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. Make room for wrath. That's a refreshing thought, isn't it? Lord, sick him. (laughs) Leave it with him. Leave it with him. The early church recognizes this God is in charge of the people who are threatening them. Now, verse 25 through 28 is a direct quote out of the second psalm, a messianic psalm. Because they wanted to, in prayer, be reminded of the fact that God foresaw all of what is happening, even in the Old Testament. 
And that's why knowing scripture is so helpful when you pray. The more you know the principles of the Bible, and you know God's power, God's majesty, God's sovereignty, God's control, God's love, it will heighten your perspective when you pray. Second, this prayer had balance. Let's read verse 25 through 28. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Notice that it's not just a prayer with perspective, but it's peppered with praise. I acknowledge that you're sovereign, and they're doing what you want, and Jesus is your holy servant. In fact, there's five verses of this. They don't even get to their request till verse 29. It's a very balanced and respectful approach. It's filled with praise and adoration as well as a request. So they didn't begin their prayer like, God, I need, I want, I must have now or I'll die. But you are God. You made it all. You said this in the Bible and you can do anything. Oh, and by the way, Lord, Here's my request. And isn't that exactly how Jesus taught us to pray? He said, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, blessed, holy, to be revered is your name. Your kingdom, let it come. Your will, may it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then, give us this day our daily bread. The requests come much later in that prayer. I heard of a girl who went into her room and stayed there a while. She came out. Her parents asked what she was doing. and She said, I was just telling God that I love him, and God was telling me that he loved me, and we were just loving on each other. That's prayer. That's balance in prayer. And the early church, with this horrible persecution against them, gets the perspective balances out their prayer with praise and adoration, loving God. And third, it had direction. They had direction. Verse 29, here's the request. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. What? They prayed for that? This is what got them in trouble. This is what got them arrested, their boldness. Now they're asking for more of what got them in trouble in the first place. And I dare say there may come a time in our country in uh, the not-too-distant future when you and I will need to pray that prayer. Give us boldness to represent Christ faithfully in a world and in a country that is not favorable toward that message. By stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What I want you to notice here is their prayer wasn't vague. It was specific. 
It was very directed, very specific. It wasn't some vague, wispy prayer like, God bless every need, spoken and unspoken, just bless. Amen. That doesn't do much. Would you walk into a restaurant and announce to the maitre d' or to the waiter or waitress, I have a general food need. Bless me. You won't get any help until you go, I want number three on the menu. And when you are specific enough to tell them what you want, then you'll get it. Somebody once said to a group of preachers, I was there, never preach to be understood, but preach so it's impossible to be misunderstood. I would say, never pray to be understood. Pray so it's impossible to be misunderstood. Not that God needs informing. Not that God needs it. It's that you and I need it. The more specific you and I are in our prayers, when it happens, you can look back and then go, I prayed for that specifically. And your faith is bolstered for the next go-around. Fourth and finally... This prayer had results. Verse 31 tells us the results. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. So the prayer that had perspective and balance and direction was the one that worked. It was the one that was powerful. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. It's that slender nerve. It might be even prayed in weakness, but when you pray with perspective and direction and balance, it is powerful. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man, James said, avails much. So the whole idea in a nutshell is this. One word, dependence. You know when you pray, you know what you're saying? You're confessing your dependence on God. And you know what you are saying when you don't pray? You're saying, I'm independent. Don't need any help. I got it covered. And isn't that the root of all sin, even from the beginning with Adam and Eve? They were independent of God. Uh, Prayer is saying, God, I I can't do life without you. I depend upon you. Everything I depend upon you. God created us to be dependent upon Him. And to be interdependent with each other. Notice the connection between they prayed in that verse. They assembled together and the power that resulted. You need the body of Christ. And the body of Christ needs you. It doesn't need your spectatorship. It doesn't need your peering from the bleachers. It needs your involvement, your prayers, your service together with the rest of us. I came across from wisdom, some wisdom from a father in a little book. The father, the author, was cooking breakfast one morning for his family, and his little eight-year-old had a joke. Hey, Dad, how do you eat an egg without cracking the shell? Dad thought about it, finally conceded he didn't know the answer. And the little boy said, by getting somebody else to crack it for you. (laughs) And so he wrote, this reminded me of some church people. 
They want the benefits the church has to offer without sharing responsibilities. They want revival as long as someone else does the praying. They want good programs as someone else, long as somebody else does the work. But if you want to eat eggs, you're going to have to break some shells. Let me uh, tell you how to break some shells. Break this shell. Find somebody to pray with. Don't just pray in your life alone. If you're a husband, learn to pray with your family, your wife. You head that up. You take the initiative. You break that shell. Pray with small groups. Church is open all during the week. You are more than welcome anytime you're in the area to stop in and to pray in the prayer room or in the sanctuary. I'd love to see that happen. I remember the time when this church had an active prayer ministry around the clock. People signed up for once a month, just a four-hour shift, and we had people in a prayer room 24-7. Anybody could call at any time, and there'd be people on the other end praying for that person. Love to see that again. I challenge the army to be raised up to take that banner once again. That's number one. Number two, if you lead any small group at all in this church, if you're a pastor on this staff, let me remind you that your priorities include prayer. Not strategizing, not planning, not coming up with cool graphics for whatever, but first and foremost, prayer and the ministry of the Word. Number three, I want you to know, after this service, we do it every service, but after this service, in particular, we're going to have the leadership of the church, small group leaders, pastors at the front of this church. We would love to bring your need, your life, your situation before the Lord and specifically ask Him to do what is needed. I think He'll honor that. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the church, the one that Jesus said he would build, the one that we see develop in this historical narrative of the book of Acts, and the very one that we are a part of now. We thank you for the church in general, but we thank you for our local body. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would direct our involvement in this local body of believers, not to watch, but to work, not to peer, but to practice and to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.